0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's all-star panel, Mike Madrid is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics. My fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project, he lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, it's always good to have you on. Welcome back.
1: Thanks. Great group today. I'm looking forward to this one.
0: Also joining us is the one and only Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought-after crisis communications expert and political analyst at MSNBC. Susan, welcome back.
2: So good to be with you guys today. On this week's
0: Roundup, we'll take a close look at the first hearing of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, including the statements from law enforcement officers what the panel's Republicans had to say, and how the hearing was covered by news networks. We're also going to spend some time talking about the resurgence of COVID-19, the CDC's new masking guidance, the White House vaccination mandate, and what Americans' preferred news source can tell us about vaccination rates. Finally, in our segment, Just for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at the Olympics, Simone Biles, and the fight to define what patriotism looks like. Let's dive in. On Tuesday, Washington's attention was focused on a committee room in the U.S. Capitol where a House select committee charged with investigating the January 6th attack on Congress held its very first hearing. Short of any of the Republican House members Minority Leader McCarthy had selected for the committee, Republicans Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney joined their Democratic colleagues in insisting that a full investigation of the events surrounding the attack is critical to our security and for American democracy. So there's a whole lot uh, to get to here, but first I want to share a few key moments of the four officers' testimony on Tuesday. In order, you'll hear D.C. Metro Police Officer Hodges, U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Gunnell, D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Fanone, and U.S. Capitol Police Officer Dunn. And a fair warning, this isn't easy to listen to. There are some expletives and we are not filtering out any of the words of these men. Let's listen.
3: The crowd was overwhelmingly white, uh, males, um, usually a little bit older, middle aged, older, but some younger, I think out of the entire time I was there, I saw just two women and two Asian males. Everyone else was white males. Um, they're, um, they didn't say anything, especially, um, xenophobic to me but to uh, my black colleagues and anyone who's not white and they would some of them would try to try to recruit me one of them came up to me and said are you my brother Um, there are many uh, many known um, organizations with ties to white uh, supremacy we had a presence there you know like three percenters oath keepers that kind of thing and um, everyone I've ever, people who associate with Donald Trump are, uh, find more likely to subscribe to that kind of belief system.
4: There are some who express outrage when someone kneels while calling for social justice. Where are those same people expressing the outrage to condone, condemn the violence attack on law enforcement, the capital, and our American democracy. I'm still waiting for
5: them. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them, and the people in this room but too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad the indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful my law enforcement career prepared me to cope with some of the aspects of this experience being an officer you know your life is at risk whenever you walk out the door even if you don't expect otherwise law-abiding citizens to take up arms against you. But nothing, truly nothing, has prepared me to address those elected members of our government who continue to deny the events of that day, and in doing so, betray their
4: oath of office. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response they yelled, no man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I'm a law enforcement officer, and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded, well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody? Nobody. That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his his entire 40 years of life, been called a nigger to his face, and that streak ended on January 6th. Yet another black officer later told me he had been confronted by insurrectionists in the Capitol who told him, Put your gun down and we'll show you what kind of nigger you really are. To be candid, the rest of the afternoon is a blur.
0: Mike and Susan, I want to let the words of these officers just set in for a minute. And there's a lot for us to talk about in this segment. Um, but before we start, I'd love to know what stood out to you the most from their testimony. Mike?
1: I think it's the, the firsthand account of what we have all known, what we all witnessed, what we've all seen. The realization that this wasn't just a, uh, an unruly mob, that this is, this is a deeper societal problem that has afflicted this country, that is not going to get better anytime soon. Um, I've shared with with you on this show a number of times, Ron. I believe we're in for um, an extraordinarily difficult and tumultuous time in American history that will probably last for at least two decades, twenty years, because of the demographic changes that are, are coming upon us. I never, as a student of demography, I never in my um, entire career in looking at these issues with these numbers ever thought that the 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 white lash as it's being Mm. called this resistance to demographic change would manifest itself in this way. And I think to, to hear it through the the words of law enforcement officers um, whose lives were on the line, who saw and are still traumatized by the events of that day. um, It's just, it's, it, 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 it's still, it's still beyond me. It's still hard to grasp. Um, what happened? I still think that we're in a little bit of shock about it. There's obviously a lot of denial going on, on the Republican side of the aisle. A lot of it is a concerted effort to pretend that it did not happen. Obviously, a lot of it is tactical because they're afraid of the political downfall um, that would obviously emanate if they were to be honest and and forthrightly address what occurred. But I do not believe for a moment that this is the end of something. I believe that we are in the opening rounds of what will be a very tumultuous time in American history. Yeah. Susan.
2: I like all of your listeners and like you guys have read more than I can imagine on what happened on January 6th. Hearing the testimony was so emotional. Knowing what happened, seeing what happened, the videos as as graphic as they were, did nothing to prepare me for listening to these four people testify before Congress. I can't think of a a hearing that that pulled on people's emotions as much as it did. I had a disagreement with a friend of mine who said he couldn't listen to it because I was I said I had texted him and he said, I just can't bring myself to to listen to it. It's so mm-hmm. disturbing. And I said, we owe it to these four officers, to listen to every single word of what they went through. It, it is a reflection. I mean, think about what these and it just happens to be these were all four men. What these men went through by their fellow citizens being brutally attacked and then hearing from one political party that it wasn't so bad. It wasn't, you know, we, we don't need to listen to any more. This doesn't need to be resolved. It also highlighted through the individual um, testimony how big of a failure this truly was yeah. um, as far as, you know, response goes, police response, military response. I believe every officer had said at some point they thought they were the last line of defense mm-hmm. and they yeah. were all in different places yeah. uh, surrounding the building or inside the building. So it is, you know, the lack of communication, the lack of response, there's so much left to um, uncover about what happened, but setting the stage this way was so important because to understand, you know, to get to the nuts and bolts, I think we all as Americans needed to hear this personal recount. And what it meant. And I know we're going to get into yeah. a whole lot of other parts of it, but I, yeah. I I listened to it again just now. It brings me to tears every single time. Yeah, it is. It's so forceful and how and it brings me not just because of the pain and suffering that these people went through, but because this happened in our country.
6: Yeah,
2: this isn't something we're seeing overseas or read about in in, in history. This was six months ago in our capital. I I, I still am. Just shocked over
0: it. I mean, Mike, I remember the day after it happened, you and I were recording this podcast and literally processing out loud what we had just seen. And what we know now is vastly more detailed than what we knew that morning. And now it feels like reliving that all over again in new, fresh ways with new information. You're right, Susan. I mean, I felt overwhelmed with all different kinds of emotion watching just, 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 you know, between, between gut wrenching and, and outrage and disgust. And just, there's so, there's so much to grapple with emotionally that it was difficult to, to sit through, but you have to sit through it. You have to know um, what happened. So I want to talk about the substance and what this, you know, what this means before we get to the optics of it and the presentation and the news coverage and all that. So first, um, you know, Mike, um, Officer Hodges' assertion that people who associate with Donald Trump are more likely to subscribe to that kind of belief system. And then there's Sergeant Gannell who called out the hypocrisy of of feigning outrage over a protest during the National Anthem to attacking a physical symbol, a literal building of our democracy. What does this show you, tell you about their idea of what American symbols really represent? And – that they are outraged over a protest during a song, but will literally use a flag as a weapon against law enforcement officers and American public servants. Symbolism of America seems seems to be viewed differently by these people than I think you and I see them, you know, than 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 we've historically thought of American symbols.
1: Well, I think the the what we're witnessing is we've always believed that symbolism, our American symbolism, has been very substantive and very Based in something foundational. And what we're realizing is either one, no, it's not, or two, what it's based in is very different than the ideals that we believe it's to be. One of the most fascinating things in looking at polling over the past couple of years that related to Trump and Trump voters, has been this undeniable thread that it's it's ultimately white resentment that weaves through educational levels, through geographic variances, through gender differences. Through, um, through income levels, through, through all of the different variances in what we call cross-tabulations or cross-tabs and polling, it's white resentment, it's white fear that is the one common glue in all of these voter groups and all these voter bases. There are obviously some exceptions because there has to be when you're talking about millions and millions of people, but as the officer said in the intro here, overwhelmingly these crowds are white, overwhelmingly they're male, overwhelmingly they're middle-aged or older. This is the Trump base. It's literally the Trump base. And it is fueled not by economic anxiety, although that may be a component of it. It's the fear of losing their perception, their idea of what America and Americanness is. And so when you believe that America is a white Christian nation, the symbols and the symbolism is very different than it is if you believe in what the actual words of what our principles and our founding documents actually say. That disconnect, in many ways, um, really speaks to uh, America's inability to reach its full promise, right? America's ideals and what America has always purported to be and what America has always been and who who it has always served well are two entirely different things. And it's why we have this very different society with two different perspectives of what America is, what America has promised, and what America has actually been. So that symbolism becomes very, it lacks substance, it lacks a foundation. And when that happens, these tools, the flag, the screaming eagles, the Donald Trump on a tank, these over-the-top masculine images, which are designed to be about force, about projecting strength, really illuminate the fact that there's really not much underneath that. It's this veneer of strength, but beneath it, that symbolism these signs are actually empty vessels. And I think that that's a big part of what we watched on January 6th. And it's a big part of what we watched during not only the Trump era and administration, but it's something we've been seeing bubbling up for quite some time.
0: Yeah. Susan, let's talk about that moment. Officer Fanon grabbed the attention of everyone in the room and hopefully everyone in Congress when he slammed his fist on the table and called the indifference shown by members of Congress to his colleagues, disgraceful. Do you think Republicans were anticipating being directly called out by any of these officers in that way?
2: Um, maybe to some extent, if you had seen some of the officers um, on television beforehand, they, ha- they, I believe all of them have done some form of interviews before.
7: Yeah.
2: So we, we kind of felt their, their, you know, their anger. Um, it, I think the Republican Party is going to really regret not backing these officers, these police officers. I want to go back to the question of symbolism also, yeah. because to me, the American flag was always something that united us. And that's what a lot of people grew up with. That's a unifying symbol. And what we've seen Donald Trump do over his time, not just on January 6th, but we saw it really amplified, is wrap himself literally in a flag as CPAC, I think it was. And then he he continued to equate Trump and patriotism and the flag and that that's what these people were bringing forth. And yet somehow they've perverse the with the symbolism of a flag into what Mike was saying about being something that is that only certain people have the right to wrap themselves in. It only serves certain people. And I think that's going to be very difficult for the Republican Party to to come to back from being creating all this hate around this important symbol for this country. Um, Yeah, it will be I think the two Republicans on the commission did a great job of of outlining the need for this to be investigated, um, especially when it came to um, Congresswoman Cheney. Mm-hmm. I think she she's going to be very interesting to watch going forward because she knows how to play those games. I mean, we talk about the Lincoln Project. One of the things. That I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, but from the outsider looking at it was these were former guys. These were former Republicans. They knew how to elect Republicans. They knew how to fight Republican and Donald Trump. Right. Well, Liz Cheney (laughs) knows Mm -hmm. what the Republican tricks are and she knows how to play them better. She is smarter than Kevin McCarthy. She is politically more astute than uh, Kevin McCarthy. And I think a lot of this is going to boomerang and and hurt the minority leader and potentially keep him the minority leader.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to get to, to Cheney and Kinzinger in, in just a second, but I have one more question about, uh, about how this goes forward. Um, uh, you know, Officer Dunn made it perfectly clear in his testimony that these attackers, uh, the ones he interacted with, were obviously racist, but also they were sent there by Donald Trump, right? This is our house Trump sent us, is what they said. Where do you think this investigation is headed, um, insofar as Donald Trump's personal incitement of the attack? I, I mean, I know we know now that the committee is moving directly to subpoenas; they're not going to mess around with letters and uh, and you know politely inviting people to come and testify. They're going straight to subpoenas. How likely do you think it is that we end up seeing Trump subpoenaed, and and especially the people around him?
2: Well, for Trump to be I mean, they can issue a subpoena. I actually don't think it would be um, in the committee's best interest to have him testify. I know everyone wants to hear it, but Hmm. this will go on forever with Donald Trump. We know he knows how to play the legal system. That doesn't mean people around him won't have to testify. And I think what they're trying to do is build a steady case and get the not just the TikTok of that that particular day. But the tick tock of what, frankly, violent actions Donald Trump sought from when he lost the election to through till he left the White House. And basically, there's a lot of people who can now talk uh, because President Biden has taken away that immunity from, you know, and lifted it so they can go ahead and, and speak, even if they worked in the White House at the time. Yeah. Donald Trump may try and f- fight that. But. I think on some cases they'll be suc- the the committee will be successful with subpoenas. I don't think they'll let it get in their way, um, like they did on impeachment, especially the first impeachment of Donald Trump. But it will, they will get enough people that may not be famous, well known names that very well could become famous, well known names. Mm,
0: yeah. Okay. Let's turn now to how Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger responded to the officers after their testimony. Let's listen.
6: Thank you to our witnesses. Uh, I never expected a day to be quite as emotional for me as it has been. Uh, I've talked to a number of you and gotten to know you. I think it's important to tell you right now, though, you guys may like individually feel a little broken. You guys all talk about the effects you have to deal with. And, you know, you talk about the impact of that day. you guys won, you guys held, you know, democracies are not defined by our bad days, we're defined by how we come back from bad days, how we take accountability for that, and for all the overheated rhetoric surrounding this committee, our mission is very simple, let's define the truth. And it's to ensure accountability.
0: Democracies are not defined by our bad days. We're defined by how we come back from bad days. I think we can agree Adam Kinzinger earnestly wants to get to the whole truth. Mike, how important for the committee's credibility is having Kinzinger and Cheney there, do you think?
1: I think they're hugely important uh, for the credibility of the committee. I don't think they're as um, important as the testimony uh, that we heard from the first four officers, nor do I think they're going to be as important as what we're about to hear. And like I said, I don't have any specific insight, but if you think that this first day of testimony was going to be the most powerful, uh, I think you need to put on a seatbelt and strap in because we're going to learn a lot. And as Susan was just mentioning, I think a lot of this stuff probably doesn't go up to the president to being subpoenaed, but it's going to go pretty high up the food chain here. We're going to have people called in. We're going to have a lot of members of Congress, people who are in that building, uh, that we're going to find out a lot of very uncomfortable, very awkward information about. And I think Kinzinger and Cheney uh, provide the opportunity to allow for some of this discussion to happen in in a very different way. It really does upset the apple cart for those Republicans who have but one tactical approach, and that is to simply attack and undermine all of the messengers. And be prepared for that. The the, the the way that they're going to try to beat this back, Republicans are going to try to beat this back, is by literally trying to destroy all of those that are testi- testifying, all of those people that are coming up and providing firsthand witness accounts. The only strategy they have when you do not have the facts with you is to undermine the messenger, is to belittle, is to demean, is to destroy the character of, and actually to to try to uh, throw some sort of inference as to what their real agenda is actually all about from a partisan perspective. So I think Kinzinger and, and Cheney um, provide uh, a bulwark against that. I really do. I think that they're going to be very powerful, as Susan also mentioned. These are very um, smart um, operatives here. These people know how the system works. This is not their first rodeo, but I think they're going to be a very they're going to play a very powerful, very important role in the unfolding yeah. of this story over the next couple of weeks and possibly months. So, one thing you know, we're, we're going to get to the uh,
0: you know the media response, how this was covered, and in particular, what the you know what the Tucker Carlson's of the world are are saying. But it does strike me. I wonder what you guys think about this. Um, that that the line. You know, the most common refrain from the uh, from the Republican Party has been essentially, it's misdirection, right? it's it's we need to ask why they weren't prepared, right? why wh- why why was security in the state that it was? They're trying to misdirect from um from what actually happened and who was responsible and who incited it. But after listening to the testimony of those officers the the idea that you would ask these four men, why weren't you prepared for an overthrow of the government on January 6th? Just seems to me so thin and flimsy as to not even be effective for the people that you're communicating to. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, it just rings so hollow, it doesn't even strike me as an effective messaging tool.
2: Well, yeah, because there are two things kind of happening with that. One is, you're, go- you're trying to discredit, as Mike said, all the witnesses, right? Right. So... You're saying, how could you not have been prepared for it? But really, and and like you said, we'll get into the coverage, but really what they're trying to say is, aren't you overreacting a bit? Because wouldn't you know better to be prepared? Yeah. But why that's so ridiculous is because there's a, you know, there is a separate story besides, and, and Liz Cheney brought this up as well. There's the story of why those people were there and what they did. And why they were driven to do it and potentially who funded it. And we know that all goes into Trump, right? Yeah. And yeah. his actions. Yeah. But there is an equally important story or, or facts rather to come out as to how our capital was breached, not because who was fighting to do it and what motivated them, but how we were not prepared and, and there's a lot to talk about there. It could be because, you know, we we know that according to General Milley, he was he was concerned about how it would look. And there's all these other things that will come out. But that is actually something you would think that, quote, law enforcement Republicans. And I use that in quotes because they are far from it. Not only are they not looking to find out what actually happened and in, in, along that, that route, they are they're trying to bury it. I it, it's it, it's mind-boggling there is one place that they could get on board with this investigation now it won't tamper out all the other stuff but it is an important area to go to and and question and valid questions maybe not to the four officers we heard but their superiors as to where things broke down and that also goes i mean i can't wait to hear from the fbi director i think he has a lot of explaining to do frankly and we need to hear that And as this unfolds, we're going to learn a lot more from the testimony of, I think, those nuts and bolts kind of decisions that were made.
0: Yeah. So the talking heads on the Trump aligned right did what you might expect them to do. Bashed and mocked and questioned the integrity of the law enforcement officers. And this is what Tucker Carlson said Tuesday night after he shared a clip of Sergeant Gannell. Let's go ahead and listen.
4: My time compared to Iraq, totally different. This is our own citizens. People who we sworn enough to protect, but yet they are attacking us uh, with the same flag that they... Claim to represent, Um, it was bad.
5: So those of us who disapprove of rioting, who said what happened on January 6th was wrong, are at risk of becoming a little bit cynical when people like that and virtually every member of Congress on both sides intentionally overstate what happened when they lie and they don't stop lying when they compare it to the Civil War or 9-11 they make us all very cynical and make us suspect that they're lying all the time because actually what happened on January 6th, according to the video we do have, does not look a lot like a rock. It's not Fallujah.
0: You know, I I actually think listening to Tucker Carlson is bad for your health because every time I hear his, every time I hear his voice, I just like, my, 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 my blood boils. Mm -hmm. It's so fucking irritating. Um, and also so much for back the blue apparently, but anyway, um, Susan, what can we learn about, you know, the rights messaging playbook here for the rest of the insurrection investigation? Just from listening to Tucker, discount Sergeant Ginnell's experience, both in Iraq and in the Capitol.
2: Well, if anyone knows about lying, it's Tucker Carlson. I mean, he's really, really good (laughs) at it. Really good at it. (laughs) Really good at it. Um, But, you know, this is an interesting one because unlike so much of the other BS he spouts, we actually have the video that shows yeah. it. So maybe you you, you want to question some of the motivation if you're the right, which I, I do not. But if they want to question the motivation about these people, four officers coming to speak, okay. But you can't question what you watch. You yeah. can't wish, question them getting beaten and sprayed with bear spray. It's It's absurd. <laughs> And this is all they have. Going back to Mike's point, you just have to try and discredit. And unfortunately, this is the way Americans gather their news is in silos. So there are people who are watching Fox News. And what's actually interesting is during when they aired the hearings, Fox News lost half of its viewership. Yeah. During that time period. And it's not like they went and watched it somewhere else. They literally didn't want to watch it. It reminds me of when you're like see a three year old stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 la. It that's exactly what they did. They tried to to ignore everything that was being shown to them. And that silo is going to be there. It is it is disgraceful. It is. Yeah, I would say shameful, but these people have no shame. So I don't know. (laughs) how to describe them like they they just they they just don't care what they're spouting again though just the fact that fox did air this in its entirety is significant what's also significant was how brett bear went after jim jordan oh my god to get information did you speak to the president that day he just kept drilling down so there. There will be some cracks, but unfortunately in primetime cable and unfortunately, I, I I do believe this is on across the networks. There is it is such an opinion. Well, it's called an opinion show. So these are people with their opinions. Um, however, Fox, they don't just give their opinions. They flat out lie and create a dangerous situation for our country.
0: Yeah. Mike, we saw McCarthy. Jim Jordan, Elise Stefanik, among others, blame Pelosi for the attack uh, and saying that the most important question is why wasn't there better security that day, right? So they've gone from nothing serious happened and it was a peaceful protest to now, why weren't you prepared for a violent overthrow of the government? I don't know where else to go here other than the misinformation, the the the, the ecosystem of information and the way people are consuming this is um, is probably one of the most dangerous Dangerous things for
1: the way history will be written, ultimately about this event. Well, look, distraction and blame is going to be par for the course for the next couple of weeks. So, if you don't have a strong stomach or an appetite for that, to know that people are going to be willingly lying and willingly distracting and willingly, you know, putting smoke and mirrors up, I would probably recommend you, you know, tune into the Olympics a little bit more than this. Um, but, and I, I, this is very important, I do believe that this is having an effect. Susan brings up another good point. Um, viewership dropped off. People are just not willing to tune in and face what they know is obviously true. History is made on the margins. I say that a lot, especially with, with campaigns. Very small shifts in public support can have outsized effects. This is having an effect, and it has just begun. It is going to have an effect. 50% of Republicans are not going to figure this out, folks. Okay, That didn't happen during Watergate. It's not going to happen now. But marginal movements of public opinion within the Republican base are going to have outsized effects. That's why, to your earlier question about Kinzinger and Cheney, does it matter? Yes, it does. Does the fact that four police officers wearing blue and uh, former veterans are are saying this is problematic, does that have an effect? Yes, it absolutely does. Is what we're about to see with further testimony from uh, government officials uh, pointing the fingers uh, with huge amounts of credibility towards high uh, people in the Trump administration, is that going to have an effect? Of course it is. All of this has this drip, drip, drip effect, which is going to move votes. It's going to move public opinion. Let's remember, let's not forget, I should say, the single largest day of the loss of Republican registration that happened during the Trump administration was, it was in the, the couple of days right after the January 6th insurrection where people said, that's finally it, I've had it, that's the bottom line, no more, I'm done, this is too distasteful, I can't be party uh, with this anymore. And I think that as that happens, and you start to see other anecdotal data, as again, Susan pointed out, viewership dropping, people facing, and, and you can't deny what is so obvious at a certain point. And while the talking heads and the Republican elected class and the leadership within that um, um you know, group of elites continues to point out um, some of these really brazen, ridiculous lies. We, we're diplomatic; we call it disinformation for yeah. for for, for politics. They're reasons. lies. <laughs> They're lies. Yeah. Um, this is going to have an effect. People people can see with their own eyes what happened. They're hearing from law enforcement what happened. They're going to hear from Republicans and Republican colleagues what happened. They are seeing their Republican neighbors say, enough, I'm out. I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. All of these things have a cumulative effect, and I believe that these hearings are going to be extraordinarily damning for the Republican Party and the leadership that is promulgating it.
0: Before we move on, um, I just want to say that we are obviously going to watch all of these developments very closely. um, And I want to reiterate something that Scott McFarlane said on our episode with him back on July 14th talking about the Justice Department's investigation, which is wholly separate, uh, and the prosecution of the attackers themselves, we are just at the starting line. This is going to be a long, drawn-out process, and it's important that we get all of the facts. But trust this process and watch this space. And if you want to hear that episode uh, with Scott, who is an award-winning investigative journalist and and the guy to pay attention to as far as the the Justice Department's prosecution and their investigation, uh, I highly recommend it. There's a link in your show notes today. And that's it for this segment. Let's talk about (laughs) (laughs) COVID-19.
1: Moving on to brighter issues. (laughs)
0: So, the big news this week was the CDC's updated masking guidance, which now says fully vaccinated individuals should return to wearing masks in certain high risk environments. Let's listen to a clip of CNN's John Berman and CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky from Wednesday.
7: But well, predominantly, this is something coming from unvaccinated people to unvaccinated people, correct? For the most part, absolutely. So then you can understand the frustration in those of us who are vaccinated saying, why the hell do I have to pay the price for this? Right. So we're asking everybody in those areas of orange and red and here here to, to mask up. And here is the reason why. If you're a vaccinated person, you have, um, and you're in one of those areas, as you said, a sea of red, a sea of COVID, you have a reasonable high chance, um, if nobody's wearing a mask, to um, interact with people who may be infectious. Um, and so for every 20 people, um, one or two of them could get a breakthrough infection. For every 20 vaccinated people, one or two of them them could get a breakthrough infection. Um, they may only get mild disease, but we wanted them to know that they could bring that mild disease home, they could bring it to others. They think they're protected in terms of transmission, and they, we felt it was important that they know and understand parents, uh, families of immunocompromised people, families at risk of severe disease, that they should protect themselves so that they don't bring that uh, disease
0: Mike, my fear is that many of the people who've done what they're supposed to do, including getting the jab, are going to be at the very least hesitant to go back to wearing masks and distancing, while the unvaccinated folks who are really driving the Delta variant surge are in all likelihood not going to listen to any CDC guidance anyway. And the rule followers can only do so much to protect the non-rule followers, um, How are you thinking about this? What should be done to reach the unvaccinated folks who, you know, who are the people, they're the people who really need to be engaged. And, and it seems like there's just no way of engaging them. And, um, and I wonder what you think is getting in the way of that outside of the obvious, you know, information silos, the oppositional defiance disorder at a mass level. Um, is there any way to break through that? Uh, that barrier, the persuasion barrier.
1: Yeah, boy, that's a great question, and this actually takes me back to a previous episode that I think the three of us were on when some of this was happening earlier this year. And I think I posited that that persuasion, that persuasion barrier that you are talking about, really wasn't a real rational way of approaching it because these folks were willing to put their own lives on the line to make sure that they were making their political argument, their political case. Um, look, I'm I don't think that there is. I think this comes down to shame and ostracization which I hate as a social tactic to use, but people are dying and they're going to continue to die. We are starting to see some hemorrhaging in the Republican cracks, right? You've got McConnell coming out. You've got a couple of Republican members coming out. People finally saying what they should have been saying vociferously months ago. You're seeing states like Oklahoma running out out of beds in pediatric departments, shipping people out to other states because they're dying. Um, the infectious rate is literally on fire in places where there are red states with extremely low vaccination rates at a certain point. Um, Darwinism does, is going to have to kick in, right? People are just gonna have to realize, okay, wait a second. Maybe what I have been feeding, maybe what I've been buying, maybe what I have been believing in is bullshit that this isn't going to work and science is going to have to finally win the day. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be before we get there. I do think that it is obviously clearly unfair that those of us that have been responsible, that have been masking, that have been isolating, that have been social distancing, that have been getting vaccinated, have been carrying the weight for these folks who are basically throwing a a political uh, temper tantrum. Um, I don't know how long it lasts, but what I will say is, again— it's these are margins guys this we are in a long protracted struggle for the heart and soul of America and it's not going to happen in one fell swoop there's not going to be a a vj day or a ve day this is not going to happen where people are suddenly going to go out to times square and it's all going to be over this is going to be a long protracted struggle for where this country is headed and it's going to take nickels and dimes to get us to where we need to get need to get to and this is unfortunately How bio-warfare became part of of the elements of this cultural war is beyond me, but here we are, and we can't deny the fact that it is happening. We simply do need to be responsible. Those of us that have been responsible are going to have to continue along that line, recognizing that it's unfair. But like I said, persuasion, I think, only goes so far. At a certain point, we're going to have to start using economic forces, restaurants, theaters, concert venues, airlines. Uh, even governments themselves um, in California, which has seen a remarkable resurgence with the Delta variant, a frighteningly high one, is now um, seeing city governments requiring all of its employees to either be tested uh, a number of times a week or prove that they've been vaccinated. We're going to have to start using the levers and leverage of both private industry and the public sector to start demanding that we get to start her- start demanding that we get to herd immunity levels, got to take off. Off the kid gloves here. Yeah. These 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 people throwing tamper, temper tantrums are have to put on the big boy and big girl pants and start realizing that you're gonna, if you're going to be a member of society, you don't have the right to make me sick, my kids sick, my parents sick. You're going to have to be a constructive member of society, and if not, then there's going to be a price to be paid.
0: Susan, if you look at the map of COVID spread, you see that the bright red rash of high, uh, you know, where the pandemic is raging are in bright red states, essentially. Do you think, you know, Mike is right that eventually the Republican leadership in these states will have had enough and will eventually cry uncle and change their tunes? Because what one thing we do know when it comes to, um, you know, uh, the way information about vaccines is, is, um, is adopted and public opinion is shaped, it has a lot to do with elite messaging and, and leadership within, especially when it's politically motivated, which for most of the anti-vaxxers, it is politically motivated. Elites shape those opinions. And when they begin to, like Sean Hannity, finally, you know, last week, this week, finally said, go get vaccinated. That actually has a big impact. Do you think the state has to just be on fire before they, before they will change their tunes? Or, or do you think they just never will?
2: Well, they've been on fire before, We've seen it. We saw that, Matt, that a lot of these states wouldn't require masking when when tens of thousands of people were dying um, or getting sick. It, it's amazing to me when you look at a state like Arkansas, for example, which has one of the lowest vaccination rates and is at what's end. What did they just recently pass and the governor sign into law? A ban on masking. You, It is a state law that you may you are not allowed to require people to mask. now. Seriously, what are you going to do with that if you're the governor? so you're not required to make wear a mask, but we don't want you to die so make sure you get a vaccination if they're not going to require you to get a vaccine uh, wear a mask, they certainly aren't going to require um, in a, in those red states that you have to be vaccinated like they are now in New York and California and we're seeing a lot of interesting buy-in um from unions especially um on the private side like Netflix is now saying you have to come back to come back to work you have to be fully vaccinated on the production side and they were only able to do it because they got buy-in from the unions and they said yes we'll sign on to that because they want that why because those unions they know if they're not if they're not vaccinated and going back to work they're not working so the interesting thing is is on buy-in you know where where it's coming from and It's just there is something to be said, though, for how the government in the last six months prepared for this moment, or I should say didn't. And, you know, I have a whole host of issues with those who are choosing not to vaccinate and the fact that the burden falls onto us. But that's what we do in a society. You know, we don't allow smoking in boardrooms or classrooms like that's what you used to allow to happen. Right. Or on an airplane. Because. Someone may have the right to smoke, but they don't have the right to kill everybody else. And basically, that's what the unvaccinated is putting a lot of people in danger because it, even if you're vaccinated, you don't want to go home. You have to be careful if you have kids at home or someone with an autoimmune uh, problem. But, but the government really has messed this up in the fact of not preparing us. I understand no one foresaw the Delta variant coming back this strong. But what they needed to do at every step of the way, instead of saying, if we hit 70% in July, we're opened up and happy Independence Day. There was an obligation all along to say, this is where we are today. And this is where we stand on July 29th. The science, what we learn is changing. We've been studying cancer for a hundred years. We still learn something new. It shouldn't be surprising that we're learning something new about the coronavirus 18 months later. That's what will continue to happen. Maybe we'll need booster shots. They should prepare us if that's a possibility. And that there's, it doesn't mean it's worse. It just means that we've been trying to fix, you know, fly the airplane and build it at the same time. And that's where I think the messaging is also hurting the fight because they say, oh, the, the doctors say we don't need to you know, wear a mask. The CDC three days ago said you don't need to if you're fully vaccinated. Now they're saying if you're in a hotspot. Well, what's a hotspot? New York City where I live is a hotspot, but my zip code is at 83% vaccinated. So it's it, we have to do a better job of communicating this is a process and that people can, It's it's not, where we stand today may not be where we are three months from now, and there's nothing wrong with that. The yeah. science isn't wrong, it's just developed.
0: Yeah, I, I take your point about being clear about this is what we know today, and because we're following the science, the information will change. Although, I would suggest to you that, uh, that using a benchmark like 70% in order to sort of mark a, a milestone in in the reopening probably had a positive impact on, on the rates of vaccinations because we were looking forward to going back to not wearing a mask and being able to go to the grocery store without fear of being infected. And don't you think that that was sort of a carrot in the messaging toolbox? It
2: was, but clearly it wasn't a big enough carrot. Mm. So for example, Shake Shack gave out free French fries if you got <laughs> if you got a, a shot. Yeah. Now, as of yesterday, the mayor says the city will give you a hundred bucks. Yeah. Why? Yeah. They need a bigger carrot. Yeah. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with incentives, and and that wasn't necessarily good messaging. It was it was unbelievable for anyone to imagine that when people were doing crazy things to have access to the vaccination. Remember all the crazy stories yeah. about people quote, cheating to get a vaccination. Yeah, I'm a teacher. Well, you teach a spin spin class, you know, but (laughs) they're trying to get the shot. But it wasn't, there had to be some preparing that this is what we expect. But when that was announced, we also knew about these different variants. We called them different things at the time. We called them, you know, yeah. The the English.
6: Yeah. You know, yeah. We
2: called it the Indian the South like, African. Yeah, South strain. African. We we yep. changed it to to yep. different words, but we knew that this was all happening, and we again, as the it's one thing to offer incentives, but you have to offer the whole story. And guess what? People are still not going to get vaccinated. When you look at the polling, those who do not want to get vaccinated. You can give them a hundred bucks. You could do a whole. You could tell them you could go to a concert. All of this other stuff, they still won't do it.
0: So, Mike, I have a bit of a curveball question for you because it just occurred to me that uh, you know we're talking about all of these states that are sort of you know on fire with va- with uh, with low vaccination rates and 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 the spread of of the Delta variant in particular being very red states, right? Um, if you zoom out and think about the long term. The long term consequences of this from a political partisan perspective. How do you think this affects the already ongoing great sort, as we refer to it? And maybe you can just give folks a primer on what the great sort is and and how Republicans are tending to cluster around in neighborhoods and move mm-hmm. into, into more more concentrated areas, and Democrats are doing the same, and how – overlay that phenomenon that we know is happening and it has been happening over the last 10, 20 years with now this um, – you know the, the the raging wildfire of COVID in in increasingly red states and 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 neighborhoods.
1: So yeah, in in brief, I think you summed it up pretty well. The great sort is really a physical phenomenon where birds of a feather are essentially flocking together. Republicans are increasingly moving to Republican neighborhoods and surrounding themselves with Republican in Republican communities, and Democrats are doing the same thing. The idea that somehow we have siloed ourselves as human beings because of Facebook and we want to communicate on the same channels and we sort that way um, while it may be true, it's been happening for many years before the internet and social media were even invented. It's been going on literally since the late 1970s. So we can see that in the electoral results from the late 1970s, mid late 1970s until today, every election cycle becomes more and more concentrated community by community um, and also siloed more and more by communication channels as well, though that's not the prime mover. So it's important to understand because um, we're going to start seeing some of these communities. Look, if you look at if you look at that that red map that you're talking about with this this rash of 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 COVID uh, infections and diseases and deaths, you also see some really interesting pockets, like in California. But when you look at California, where it's happening, you're starting to see these pockets of Republican communities in Orange County, for example, as much as you're seeing it um, in other Republican areas of of the state. So, yeah, it's a phenomenon where the science is starting to follow the political leanings of these different constituencies. And it's going to – look, we don't know what the long-term effect is. I get a lot of questions all the time on social media, people saying, you know, are all these people dying? Is this going to affect the midterm elections? (laughs) I mean, it's not even – besides being a very macabre question, it it is a legitimate one. It's a a fair question to ask, but there are other factors like turnout that will have a much greater impact uh, than, than the death rate. Although I will say this look, these things are marginal. I'll say it again. Margin- history is made on the margins. I think it is going to have some sort of an impact. The impact will be far greater socially before it's going to be political, though.
0: You know, Since we wrapped our last segment by talking about how right-wing media is covering the insurrection, I want to also bring up an interesting article uh, in the Washington Post by folks from the COVID States Project, who ran a survey that demonstrates a strong and troubling relationship between where people get their news and whether they self-report to be vaccinated or not. So of the entire survey population, 68% said they had been vaccinated, 14% said they might get vaccinated, and 18% said they will not get vaccinated. And of folks who say that they get their news about COVID-19 directly from the Biden administration or from MSNBC or CNN, they beat that mark with over three quarters reporting they'd already been vaccinated. On the other side of the scale, though, viewers of Fox News and Newsmax, and notably people who get their news primarily through Facebook, have lower percentages of being vaccinated with one in three Newsmax viewers saying they will not get vaccinated, period. Um, you know, Mike, we've we've talked a lot of, on the show about vaccine hesitancy and acceptance rates among different demographics. Uh, we just talked about the, the physical sorting, and now we see a direct relationship between vaccinations and news consumption and information. And we know misinformation, you know, everyone needs to understand this if you don't already, is protected by the First Amendment, um, you know, but when it exacerbates public health crises, you know, are there strategies? I guess this is sort of a re-up of my earlier question, but are you know, are there strategies that public institutions and responsible media or the private sector can use to break through this 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 barrier? or you know are are we truly just left to sit and watch um, while 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 the fire rages and try to stay as far from it as possible as vaccinated Americans?
1: Look, it comes down again to the, this this big debate: Is it should we be trying to persuade these people and convince them with more and more evidence and more and more education that this is something that they should do for themselves, for their families, and for their communities, or do you shame people and ostracize them by by trying to literally put them on the margins of society by saying you're not allowed to go to restaurants, you're not allowed to travel, you're not allowed to 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 be a full participant in society unless you have a vaccine passport, for example, which is why there's this debate about vaccine passports, right? I have always been a subscriber to the belief that ostracization is going to work in this instance far more, probably because I watched the polling on this stuff. And even when we were talking about the Bannon line back during the Lincoln Project, I knew that we were only going to get four to five percent of Republicans to ultimately switch over. That's how small these these marginal numbers are. Four to five percent does not get you to herd immunity. Okay, it's not. If we move these these OAN viewers or Fox News viewers, four to five percent. We're really not making a big enough dent to actually make society get back to healthy. So how do you do that? You have to start breaking off these opinion leaders brick by brick, whether it's Sean Hannity, whether it's the governor of Alabama, whether it's Mitch McConnell. All of these people in the past 10 to 14 days have started to break off because they are coming under increasing social pressure. Fox, it may be legal pressure, right? Yeah. They may be realize they're going to get sued and get driven into bankruptcy. Same with OAN. Uh, Alabama, the governor of Alabama is starting to realize, hey, wait a second, I'm going to lose tens of thousands of people here. So I can either toe the political line or I can follow the science. McConnell, whatever McConnell's rationale is, whether trying to show uh, some sort of a contrast between him and Donald Trump or whether he's realizing Kentucky is going to be lit on fire with COVID too, all of these people are breaking for different reasons. It's happening brick by brick. That's the way this is unfortunately going to unfold. Back in the 1950s when there was a polio vaccine, the amount of people that we were able to get online and take a, a shot in the arm was was ridiculous because people had a face in institutions they didn't view themselves as republicans or democrats they viewed themselves as americans we no longer we no longer have that same perspective so this will be a long protracted battle i think it's one that we ultimately win but it's going to be a fight for inches it's going to be like trench warfare in world war 1 it's literally going to be slogging down in the mud making a run you know, uh, across the battlefield, and maybe you, you pick up a couple of feet, a couple of yards in the interim. But by and large, that's the way this is going to play out. It's going to be a long, protracted fight because persuasion as a tool no longer works. It's going to have to be based largely on ostracization and shaming people or forcing them through economic or public sector means to make damn sure that they're being a full participant in society, making sure that we're not sick as a community.
2: Can I, I I agree with that, except I'd like to add what I think will be the factor that really changes everything. And it may not be in in two months, but it will probably be in in the neighborhood of six months to a year. And that's when these vaccinations are approved by the FDA. They will be able to be mandated, but more importantly, they will be required for children going to school. Yep. That is the game changer school, meaning from, from nursery school, throughout college that will be required as it is required for anyone going to any public school right now, you have to get the mumps, you have to get, you you get the whole, you know, I think there's five or six that you're required. Once that hits, that is a game changer because when you look at the numbers in the vaccination, when who's fully vaccinated, you see 18 and older, Mm -hmm. and that's around 60% now. And then we see 49 point, I think it's 8% today of the entire population. That's when you start getting to herd immunity. That's when people are saying, Oh, I got to sick. My kids got to get it. I might as well get it too. Now. Um, it, that. That emphasis to get your kids into school and back to school will be tremendous. Yeah. And just with, you know, I just, it's interesting that Mike brought up polio in the fifties is Mitch McConnell because of his bout, and dealing with with, polio with polio he he's spending his campaign money now i think he nets nearly a million dollars in radio ads over the next few days um you know paid for by his campaign as a public service message because he sees it he's connected to it so
0: god he's so good
2: so i mean honestly it's i know people i mean okay good great good
0: it's good he's doing it but like "Mm."
2: i know but You know what? Whatever it takes. I mean, for some people, I do think it's that they're seeing their constituents or viewers die. Yeah. That 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 is a motivator. Economics are a motivator as well. But that the fact that we're gonna have our kids going back to school with this vaccination is Going to be a game changer.
0: Okay, so just picking up on the point you just made, which is, you know, constituents and viewers dying, right? So CNN reported last week that Fox quietly implemented what could be called a vaccine passport in their own offices, even though Tucker Carlson on air keeps decrying vaccine passports as the medical equivalent of Jim Crow laws. Why, Susan, isn't Fox News taking any action to correct the record on their own network? Like, okay, yes, we talked about Ducey. We we talked about Hannity and you have Ducey also saying, uh, you know, look into getting the vaccine. But why hasn't the network done anything affirmative to denounce Tucker's rhetoric, which is killing people?
2: Well, they don't do anything to denounce Tucker's um, rhetoric. Like when he said that the government was spying on him and tapped into his phones, the NSA was, you know, looking into him. He spouts this stuff because he brings in the ratings. And or it's good for the ratings. And Fox is happy to let that happen. They have not done anything to Tucker Carlson. He has seen zero consequence for his language on the air by the network. The network somehow thinks it can operate in, in two, lo- you know, parallel lines. Um, one of the the interesting things I always look at is Ron DeSantis in Florida. He said, yeah. you know, CDC, you can't stop cruise industry coming into my state because of, you know, and then the cruise industry saying, "But we're requiring uh, vaccines," and DeSantis says, "No, you're not allowed to do that." Now they're in, they're suing each other. But these are all things that politicians and TV hosts are starting to say. You know, it's go- we could say one thing here and another thing there, yeah. and just get away with it. Yeah. It's it's kind of unbelievable and shocking, and yet not really.
0: Now that we're up to speed on at least two of the biggest stories this week. What are you both watching,
1: Mike? I'm watching the numbers for Gavin Newsom in California tumble to some pretty <laughs> scary levels if you're an incumbent. Uh, LA Times poll came out just yesterday showing that it's about 50-50 race now on the recall. Now look, I wanna, you know, calm people down for a moment. The fundamentals of this race still look pretty good for Gavin Newsom. If you actually do the math, which I'd like to do when I'm, you know, doing a voter model. Even if 90% of Republicans voted for the recall, which most of them probably will, you still need more than half of independents and about one in four Democrats to vote for the recall to make this successful. Not likely to happen. But there are some very serious problems, and people are not happy with the way the state of California is being run right now. And it is worth watching. We're about 60 days out from this recall election. There does not seem to be a real viable Republican alternative. Certainly not anybody that's catching fire or consolidating the base, but the numbers for Gavin Newsom are not good no matter how you slice it and it is something that we're going to have to watch
2: but is that also because of the covid re- yeah. um coming back i mean that's what everyone start, that's how i would kind of look at it well in uh,
1: definitely in part but you have to keep in mind the whole reason why we're here is because of the way that people believe he mishandled the covid situation
4: right so but- it's not
1: like it's not like this is out of his control this is a result of his actions mm. It's not like this is like, oh, there's nothing what could he do about it? Poor Gavin Newsom. No, this is because he handled this extremely poorly with a very, very flimsy way of setting up any sort of late local or statewide ordinances to actually handle the COVID situation. That's why people were revolting. Mm. The fact that it's coming back and that we still have very clear, unclear uh, guidelines on how to handle this certainly does not play into his favor. But it's not like this is something that was outside of his control. Susan, what are you watching?
2: I am watching the George Floyd Police Reform Act. And the reason I'm watching it is about two weeks ago, Tim Scott, the Republican who's leading negotiations on it from the Republican Senate side, he said, if it's not done by the end of the month, it's very unlikely that it will move forward. Well, it's the end of the month. Wow. And they leave for uh, the Senate breaks for August recess on August 9th. So there's not a lot of time here. I'm kind of wondering if there will be some pressure on the Democrats from the White House, given where we are with with crime right now in this country, to to actually just negotiate and move it and, t- and take a win. It helps in a whole host of political ways. But that time is really coming down to the wire and, and to got come infrastructure. back in September. Well, infrastructure, I think we think is done and still has so much to be left worked out that right. they're going to come back in September and at least it's going to be on the agenda. I don't think, according to Tim Scott, it may not even be on the agenda if it doesn't get passed right now.
0: Yeah. OK. Well, what I'm watching is infrastructure, actually. Um, uh, you know, And just so our listeners know, after weeks of negotiating, a bipartisan group of senators did finally compromise and the full body voted 67-32 Wednesday uh, to open debate, which is just a next procedural state um, uh, in this process on roughly $1 trillion in infrastructure. Um, 17 Republicans, including McConnell joined all 50 Democrats to vote in favor of beginning legislative action. And just as a reminder, this includes $73 billion to rebuild the electrical grid, 66 billion in passenger and freight rail, All hard infrastructure, broadband internet access, water infrastructure, bridges, public transit. um, And this is, you know, just procedural, but it does look like it's moving forward um, and uh, is still a long way from passing. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? Susan?
2: Um, On Twitter at delpercios.
0: Mike? Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Make sure you stick around to hear the sneak peek of our latest Enemies of Democracy episode about Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, available exclusively on Politicology Plus. That will play in just a minute. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission— You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist, look further down the road than everyone else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's plus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. And for a limited time until August 3rd, we're offering 40% off of monthly subscriptions, and you can lock in that rate for as long as you keep it. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, and colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. And now, a sneak peek of the most recent episode in our Enemies of Democracy series.
4: And welcome
5: to the special edition of Hannity. Now we will explore the deeply concerning rise of Marxism as, as America's radical New Green Deal Democratic Socialists. Good evening and welcome. to Tucker Carlson tonight. The arrival of the Chinese coronavirus. Let's take a closer look at the decrepit, struggling, barely functioning guy in the White House. Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade and this is Fox News Primetime. There were 10 times as many national Guardsmen in Washington, D.C. as they're currently in Afghanistan right now. Fox News cameras capturing huge groups of illegal immigrants crossing the border. And- uh, President Joe Biden's latest round of executive orders. You saw that yesterday as he as he muddled through and kind of mumbled through his mask. Remember, Joe Biden, he once called African-Americans predators on our streets. He worried that his precious children would grow up in integrated schools that he referred to as racial jungles. What
0: if the news was controlled? By a single power hungry family? What kind of influence could you hold if you pulled the strings at a host of premier media outlets? What could you choose to expose or choose to conceal? Hello, Politicology Plus. It's Ron. Welcome to this episode of Enemies of Democracy. Our series of exposés and backstories on those individuals who represent the gravest threats to democracy. The people who are keeping Trumpism alive and advancing dangerous ideologies. And it's exclusively for you, our Politicality Plus community. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Murdoch family, specifically Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan.
7: Well, Murdoch's a, a, a proper
5: danger to liberal democracies, if liberal democracy is your thing.
0: Fox News is a model for radicalization. It's stirring people up, it's upsetting people.
5: Oh, without question, you know, you don't get Donald Trump as president without Fox News. I mean, they transformed the politics in this country to be a reality show spectacle, to prize. Um, uh, bombast and, and the volume of what you're saying over the substance of what you're saying.
0: Rupert Murdoch is the billionaire global media mogul who has brought us Fox News and controls the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, and hundreds of local, national, and international outlets in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. His ties to right-wing causes and organizations, climate change denial, and general loose association with truth and facts are very well documented. So why are we talking about Rupert and his son? Because disrupting democracy has become the family business, literally. Our central question is, to what ends? And what is the Murdoch's ultimate goal? You can find the rest of this episode on Politicology+. Plus. You'll get more episodes in our Enemies of Democracy series, listen in to our phone calls with experts and strategists, and get an exclusive roundup segment just for plus listeners when you join our dedicated community. We're offering a limited-time 40% discount off new subscriptions until August 3rd. Visit politicology.com plus to join.